Episode 3, after a little bit of a break, and this because when I want to, mainly sometimes they want to read, and other, other time, I just like forgot. Okay, so page 69, the audio-visual part 2. <coughs> the Nightline show had done a follow-up story on Maury, partly because the reception for the first show had been so strong. This time, when the cameraman and producers came through the door, they already felt like family, and Copeland himself was noticeably warmer. There was no feeling out process, no interview before the interview. As warm-up, Copel and Maury exchanged stories about their childhood backgrounds. Copel spoke of growing up in England, and Maury spoke of growing up in the Bronx. Maury wore a long sleeve blue shirt. He was almost always chilly, same, even when it was 90 degrees outside. But Copel removed his jacket and did the interview in shirt and tie. It was, it was as if Maury were breaking him down one layer at a time. You look fine, Copel said when the tape began to roll. That's what everybody tells me, Maury said. You sound fine. That's what everybody tells me. So how do you know things are going downhill? Maury sighed. Nobody can know it but me, Ted. But I know it. As he spoke, it became obvious. He was not waving his hands to make a point as freely as he had in their first conversation. He had trouble pronouncing certain words. The L sound seemed to get caught in his throat. In a few more months, he might not want to speak at all. Here's how my emotions go, Maury told Copel. When I have people in France here, I'm very up. The loving relationships maintain me. But there are days when I am depressed. Let me not deceive you. I see certain things going and I feel a sense of dread. What am I going to do without my hands? What happens when I can't speak? Swallowing. I don't care so much about. So they feed me through a tube. So what? My voice? My hands? They're such an essential part of me. I talk with my voice. I gesture with my hands. This is how I give to people. How will you give me when you can no longer speak? Or how will you give when you can no longer speak? Copel asked. Moy shrugged. Maybe I'll have everyone ask me yes or no questions. It was such a simple answer that Copel had to smile. He asked Maury about silence. He mentioned a dear friend Maury had, Maury Stein, who had first sent Maury's aphorisms to the Boston Globe. They had been together at Brandy, Brandy's since the early 60s. Now Stein was going deaf. Copel imagined the two men together one day, unable to, one unable to speak, the other unable to hear. What would that be like? We will hold hands, Maury said. Oh. And there would be a lot of love passing between us. Ted, we've had 35 years of friendship. You don't need speech or hearing to feel that. Oh, oh, Maury. Oh, the heart. Okay. Before the show ended, Maury read Copel one of the letters he'd received. Since the first Nightline program, there had been a great deal of mail. One particular letter came from a school teacher in Pennsylvania who taught a special class of nine children. Every child in class had suffered the death of a parent. Here's what I sent her back, Maury told Copel, perching his glasses gingerly on his nose and ears. Dear Barbara, I was very moved by your letter. I feel the work you have done with the children who have lost a parent is very important. I have also lost a parent at an early age. Suddenly, with the camera still humming, Maury adjusted the glasses. 
He stopped, bit his lip, and began to choke up. Tears fell down his nose. I lost my mother when I was a child. It was a quite a blow to me. I wish I had a group like yours where I would have been able to talk about my sorrows. I would have joined your group because... His voice cracked. Because I was so lonely. Maury, Copel said. That was 70 years ago your mother died. The pain still goes on. You bet. Maury whispered. Oh, what the... Oh, God. Oh, man. It's hard. Okay. That was, that's it for the chapter. Okay. We just skip it. No interlogue to, or flashback. The professor. He was eight years old. A telegram came from the hospital. And since his father, a Russian immigrant, could not read English, Maury had to break the news, reading his mother's, mother's death notice like a student in front of the class. We regret to inform you, he began. On the morning of the funeral, Moore's relatives came down the steps of its tenement building on the low, poor lower east side of Manhattan. The men wore dark suits, the women wore veils, the kids in the neighborhood were going off to school, and as they passed, Moore looked down, ashamed that his classmates would see him this way. One of his aunts, a heavyset woman, grabbed Maury and began to wail. What will you do without your mother? What will become of you? Maury burst into tears. His classmates ran away. At the cemetery, Maury watched as they shoveled dirt into his mother's grave. He tried to recall the tender moments they had shared when she was alive. She had operated a canyon's door until she got sick, after which she mostly slept or sat by the window, looking friendly weak. Sometimes she would yell out for her son to get her some medicine. A young Maury playing stickball in the street would pretend he did not hear her. In his mind, he believed he could make the illness go away by ignoring it. How else can a child comfort death? Maury's father, who everyone called Charlie, had come to America to escape the Russian army. He worked in the fur business, but was constantly out of the job. Out of a job, uneducated and barely able to speak English, he was terribly poor, and the family was on public assistance much of the time. Their apartment was a dark, cramped, depressing place behind the candy store. They had no luxuries, no car. Sometimes, to make money, Maury and his younger brother David would wash would wash port steps together for a nickel. After their mother's death, the two boys were sent off to a small hotel in the Connecticut woods where several families shared a large cabin and a communal kitchen. Fresh air might be good for the children, the relatives thought. Maury and Dad had never been seen so much greenery, and they ran and played in the fields. One night after dinner, they went for a walk, and it began to rain. Rather than come inside, they splashed around for hours. The next morning when they awoke, Maury hopped out of bed. Come on, he said to his brother, get up. I can't. What do you mean? David's face was panicked. I can't move. He had polio. Damn. Of course the rain did not cause this, but a child Maury's age could not understand that. For a long time, as his brother was taken back and forth to a special medical home and was forced to wear braces on his legs, which left him limping, Maury felt responsible. So in the mornings, he went to synagogue by himself, by himself because his father was not a religious man. 
and he stood on, stood among the swaying men in their long black coats, and he asked God to take care of his dead mother and his sick brother. <coughs> in the afternoons, he stood at the bottom of the subway steps and hawked magazines, turning whatever money he had made over to his family to buy food. In the evening, he watched his father eat in silence, hoping for but never getting a show of affection, communication, warmth. At nine years old, he felt as if the weight of the mountains were on his shoulder. Weight of a mountain were on his shoulders. But a saving embrace came into Maury's life the following year. His new stepmother, Eva, she was short. She was a short Romanian immigrant with plain features, curly brown hair, and the energy of two women. She had a glow that warmed the otherwise murky atmosphere his father created. She talked when her new husband was silent. She sang songs to the children at night. Maury took comfort in her soothing voice, her school lessons, her strong character. When his brother returned home from the medical home, still wearing leg braces from the polio, the two of them shared a rollaway bed in the kitchen of their apartment. And Eva would kiss him goodnight. Maury waited on those kisses like a puppy waits on milk, and he felt deep down that he had a mother again. Oh, this is beautiful. There is no escaping their poverty, however. They live, now, they live now in the Bronx, in a one-bedroom apartment in the red brick building on Tremont Avenue, next to an Italian beer garden where the old men played bocce on summer evenings. Because of the Depression, Maury's father found even less work in the fur business. Sometimes when the family sat at the dinner table, all Eva could put out was bread. What else is there? David would ask. Nothing else, she would answer. When she tucked Maury and David into bed, she would sing to them in Yiddish. Even the songs were sad and poor. There was one about a girl trying to sell her cigarettes. Please buy my cigarettes. They are dry, not wet by rain. Take pity on me. Take pity on me. Still, despite their circumstances, Maury was taught to love and to care. And to learn. He would, Eva would accept nothing less than excellence in school because she saw education as the only antidote to their poverty. She herself went to night school to improve her English. Maury's love for education was hatched in her arms. He studied at night by the lamp at the kitchen table, and in the mornings he would go to synagogue to say Kaddish, the national prayer for the dead, for his mother. Kaddish? Kaddish? He did this to keep her memory alive. Incredibly, Maury had been told by his father never to talk about her. Charlie wanted David to think Eva was his natural mother. It was terrible. It was a terrible burden to Maury. For years, the only evidence Maury had of his mother was the telegram announcing her death. He had hidden it the day it arrived. He would keep it for the rest of his life. Well, when Maury was a teenager, his father took him to a fur factory where he worked. This was during the Depression. The idea was to get Maury a job. He entered the factory and immediately felt as if the walls had closed in around him. The room was dark and hot, the windows covered with the filth, and the machines were packed tightly together, churning like train wheels. The fur hairs were flying, creating, thick, creating a thinking air, and the workers served the pelts together and were bent over their needles as the boss marched up and down, screaming them for up and down the row, screaming for them to go faster. Maury could barely breathe. He stood next to his father, frozen with fear, hoping the boss wouldn't scream at him too. During lunch break, his father took Maury to the boss and pushed him in front of him. 
asking if there was any work for a son. But there was barely enough work for the adult laborers, and no one was giving it up. This for Mori was a blessing. He hated the place. He made another vow that he kept to the end of his life. He would never do any work that exploited someone else, and he would never allow himself to make money off the sweat of others. Damn, what will you do? Evil would ask him. I don't know, he would say. He ruled out law because he didn't like lawyers. He ruled out medicine because he couldn't take the side of blood. What will you do? It was only through a default that the best professor I'd ever had became a teacher. <laughs> Am I, boy? A, uh, there's a quote on the next page it's the only thing on the page it says a teacher affects eternity he can never tell where his influence stops by Henry Adams the goal this live time. This is going to be weird when you're watching this or listening to it. I'm sending you this on the Snapchat right now. Oh, you sent me. Okay, we're back. Okay, mess that one up. You just text me back too, but I can't. I can't answer that because it'll mess everything up again. Okay. So I read the quote. Alright, uh, next chapter. The fourth Tuesday we talk about death. Let's begin with this idea Maury said. Everyone knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. He was in business-like mood this Tuesday. The subject was death, the first item on the list. Before I arrived, Maury had scribbled a few notes on his small white pieces of paper so that he wouldn't forget. His shaking handwriting now was now indecipherable to everyone but him. Indecipherable. It was almost Labor Day, and through the office window I could see the spinach-colored hedges of the backyard and hear the yells of children playing down the street, their last week of freedom before school began. Back in Detroit, the newspaper strikers were gearing up for a huge holiday demonstration to show the solidarity of unions against management. On the plane ride in, I had read about a woman who had shot her husband and two daughters as they lay sleeping, claiming she was protecting them from the bad people. In California, the lawyers in the O.J. Simpson trial were becoming huge celebrities. Here in Maury's office, life went on one precious day at a time. Then we sat together a few feet from the newest addition to the house, an oxygen machine. It was small and portable, about knee high. On some nights, when he couldn't get enough air to swallow, Maury attached the long plastic tubing to his nose, clamping on his nostrils like a leech. I hated the idea of Maury connected to a machine of any kind, and I tried not to look at it as Maury spoke. Everyone knows they're going to die, he said again. But nobody believes it. If we did, we would do things differently. Facts. So we kid ourselves about death, I said. Yes, but there's a better approach. Know you're going to die and to be prepared for it at any time. That's better. That way you can actually be more involved in your life while you're living. How can you ever be prepared to die? 
do what the Buddhists do. Every day they have a little bird on their shoulder that asks. Every day you have a little bird on your shoulder that asks, is today the day? Am I ready? Am I doing all I need to do? Am I being the person I want to be? He turned his head to his shoulder as if the bird were there now. Is today the day I die, he said. Where he borrowed freely from all religions. He was born Jewish but became an agnostic when he was a teenager, partly because of all that had happened to him as a child. He enjoyed some of the philosophies of Buddhism and Christianity and he felt at home culturally in Judaism. He was a religious mutt, which made him even more open to the students he taught over the years. And the things he was see, saying in his final months on earth seemed to transcend all religious differences. Death has a way of doing that. The truth is, Mitch, he said, once you learn how to die, you learn how to live. <laughs> I nodded. I'm going to say it again, he said. Once you learn how to die, you learn how to live. He smiled, and I realized what he was doing. He was making sure I absorbed this point without embarrassing me by asking. It was part of what made him a good teacher. Do you think much about death before you got sick? Did you think much about death before you got sick, I asked. No. More he smiled. I was like everyone else. I once told a friend of mine, in a moment of exuberance, I'm going to be the healthiest old man you've ever met. How old were you? In my 60s. So you're optimistic. Why not? Like I said, no one really believes they're going to die. But everyone knows someone who has died, I said. Why is it so hard to think about dying? Because, Moore continued, most of us all walk around as if we're sleepwalking. We really don't experience the world fully because we're half asleep, doing things we automatically think we have to do. And facing death changes all that? Oh yes. You strip away all that stuff and you focus on the essentials. When you realize you're going to die, you see everything much differently. He sighed. Learn how to die and you learn how to live. I noticed that he quivered now when he moved his hands. His glasses hung around his neck. When they lifted him to his eyes, he slid them around his temples as if he were trying to put them on someone else in the dark. I reached over to help guide them onto his ears. Thank you. Mori whispered. He smiled when my hands brushed up against his head. The slightest human contact was immediate joy. <laughs> Thanks. Mitch, can I tell you something? Of course. Oh, my next man here. Let me meet him.
that was almost a that was an awkward experience uh, so he like i walk all the way out to the door like he had to go to the back of the fedex truck and like grab it so i'm like all the way at his vehicle for a solid 10 15 seconds before he comes out and then he comes out and goes to miss joe's house and i'm like oh i'm an idiot and then miss joe comes out on the neighbor and says nope it's for him i'm like oh okay so like i had walked all the way back to the porch and had to turn right back around <laughs> i be a new guy he ain't been here before he don't know us okay back to it okay Okay, Mitch, can I tell you something? Of course I said. You might not like it. Why not? Well, the truth is, if you really listen to that bird on your shoulder, if you accept that you can die at any time, then you might not be as ambitious as you are. I forced a small grin. The things you spend so much time on, all this work you do, might not seem as important. You might have to make room for more spiritual things. Spiritual things? You hate that word, don't you? Spiritual. I think it's touchy-feely stuff. I love That's one of my favorite words. What have I said? It is touchy-feely stuff. Uh, he tried to wink. A bad try. And I broke down and laughed. Mitch, he said, laughing along. Even I don't know what spiritual development really means, but I do know we're deficient in some way. We are too involved in materialistic things and they don't satisfy us. The loving relationships we have, the universe around us, we take these things for granted. Amen. He nodded toward the window with the sunshine streaming in. You see that? You can go out there, outside, anytime. You can run up and down the block and go crazy. I can't do that. I can't go out, I can't run, I can't be out there without fear of getting sick. But you know what? I appreciate that window more than you do. Appreciate it? Yes. I look out that window every day. I notice the change in the trees, how strong the wind is blowing, as if I can see time actually passing through that window pane. Because I know my time is almost done. I'm drawn to nature like I'm seeing it for the first time. He stopped. And for a moment, we both just looked out the window. I tried to see what he saw. I tried to see time and seasons, my life passing in slow motion. Boyd dropped his head slightly and curled it toward his shoulder. Is it today, little bird? He asked. Is it today? Letters from around the world kept coming to Maury, thanks to the nightline appearances. He would sit when he was up to it and dictate the responses to friends and family who gathered for their letter writing sessions. One Sunday when his sons, Rob and John, were home, they all gathered in the living room. Where he sat in his wheelchair, his skinny legs under a blanket. When he got cold, one of his helpers draped a nylon jacket over his shoulders. What's the first letter, Maury said. A colleague read a note from a woman named Nancy who had lost her mother to LAS. A-L-S. She wrote to say how much she had suffered through the loss and how she knew that what Maury must be how she knew that Maury must be suffering too. All right, Maury said. Maury said when the reading was complete, he shut his eyes. Let's start by saying, dear Nancy, you touched me very much with your story about your mother, and I understand what you went through. There is sadness and suffering on both parts. Grieving has been good for me. I hope it's been good for you also. I want to change that last line, Rob said. Maury thought for a second and then said, 
Right. How about hope you can find the healing power in grieving? Is that better? Rob nodded. Add, thank you, Maury. Maury said. Another letter was read from a woman named Jane, who was thanking him for his inspiration on the Nightline program. She referred to him as a prophet. That's a very high compliment, said a colleague. A prophet. Maury made a face. He obviously didn't agree with the assessment. Let's thank her for her high praise and tell her I'm glad my words meant something to her. And don't forget to sign. Thank you, Maury. There was a letter from a man in England who had lost his mother and asked Maury to help him contact her through the spiritual world. There was a letter from a couple who wanted to drive to Boston to meet him. There was a long letter from a former graduate student who wrote about her life after the university. It told of a murder-suicide and three stillborn births. It told of a month. I'm just talking about horn at her. Okay, hear me. Okay. It told of a mother who died from ALS. Oh, it expressed fear that she, the daughter, who would also would also it expressed fear that she, the daughter, would also contract the disease. It went on and on. Two pages, three pages, four pages. Maury sat through the long grim tale. When it was finally finished, he said softly. Well, what do we answer? The group was quiet. Finally, Rob said, How about, thanks for your long letter? Everyone laughed. Moore looked at his son and beamed. Oh, another flashback. Okay. The newspaper nearest chair has a photo of a Boston baseball player who is smiling after pitching a shutout. Of all the diseases, I think to myself, Moore gets one named after an athlete. You remember Lou Gehrig, I asked? You remember in the stadium saying goodbye? So you remember the famous line? Which one? Come on, Lou Gehrig, proud of the Yankees. A speech that echoes over the loudspeakers. Remind me, Maury says, through the speech. With the open window, I hear the sound of a garbage truck. Although it is hot, Maury is wearing long sleeves with a blanket over his legs, his skin pale. The disease owns him. I raise my voice and do the Gehrig imitation, where the words bounce off the stadium walls. Today, I feel like the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Boy closes his eyes and nods slowly. Yeah, well, I didn't say that. Okay, this is page 90. Let's see how long this is. Oh, the next chapter starts on page 100. We got to. Oh, the satisfaction. Okay. The fifth Tuesday, we talk about family. It was the first weekend of September, back to school week. And after 35 consecutive autumns, my old professor did not have a class waiting for him on the college campus. Boston was teeming with students, double parked on side streets, unloading trunks. Here was Maury in his study. It seemed wrong like those football players who finally retire and have to face that first Sunday at home, watching on TV, thinking, I could still do that. I have learned from dealing with those players that it's best to leave them alone when their old seasons come around. Don't say anything. But then, I need to remind Maury of his dwindling time. 
for tape conversations, we had switched from handheld microphones because it was too difficult now for more to hold anything that long. To the lavalier, kind of, kind of popular with TV people. Reading. Oh, what's in the bag? Oh, yeah, that's for you. FedEx just dropped it off. Oh. You've got a couple more in there too. Hello. Alrighty. Thank you. Uh, for our tape conversations, we switched from handheld microphones because it was too difficult now for more to hold anything that long to the lavalier kind popular with TV newspaper. Oh, you mean like the kind I'm wearing right now? You can clip, the, clip these onto a collar or lapel. Yeah, yeah, exactly like I'm wearing right now. Of course, since Maury only wore soft cotton shirts that hung loosely on his ever-shrinking frame, the microphone sagged and flopped, and I had to reach over and adjust it frequently. Maury seemed to enjoy this because it brought me close to him and hugging range and his need for physical affection was stronger than ever. When I leaned in, I heard his wheezing breath and his weak coughing, and he smacked his lips softly before he swallowed. Well, my friend, he said, what are we talking about today? How about family? Family. He mulled it over for a moment. So, Reagan was going to cook taco soup today. Yeah, and she ain't here, obviously. Right. <laughs> She was here for like 10 minutes. Yeah. So, um, you can chop the onion and pepper, and I'll start it in a little while, or we can fend for ourselves and make her cook it tomorrow. Sounds like a plan. Which one? Make her fend for ourselves. Oh, okay. And, hey, I'll, I'll put that, I didn't like them ribs at all. You didn't? No. Oh, okay. No, nah, I'm not, I'm a when it comes like here, like chicken on the bone, ribs, ribs on the bone, it's it's got to be all meat, no bone, and yeah. it just felt like I was gnawing the whole time. Yeah, there wasn't much meat on them. Yeah. Well, the sauce, the sauce was good, but yeah, yeah. The only reason I like smoking on the boulevards is because they literally fall off the right. bone. I hear you smoking. I hear you, buddy. I had to get that in. I had to make sure she didn't buy those again because they were terrible. Worst ribs I've ever had in my life. And it's a shame because it was a good sauce too. Jack Daniels ribs don't buy them. Okay. Uh, family. He mulled it over for a moment. Well, you see, mine's all around me. He nodded to photos on his bookshelves. So Maury is a child with his grandmother. Maury is a young man with his brother, David. Maury with his wife, Charlotte. Maury with his two sons, Rob, a journalist in Tokyo, and John, a computer expert in Boston. I think in light of what we've been talking about all these weeks, family becomes even more important, he said. The fact is, there's no foundation, no secure ground upon which people may stand today if it isn't the family. It's become quite clear to me that as I've been sick, if you don't have the support and love and caring and concern that you get from a family, you don't have much at all. Love is so Love is so supremely important. As our great uh, poet Owen said, love each other or perish. Love each other or perish. I wrote it down. Owen said that. Love each other or perish, Maury said. It's good, no? And it's so true. Without love, we are birds with broken wings. Say I was divorced or living alone or had no children. This disease, what I'm going through, would be so much harder. I'm not sure I could do it. 
Sure, people will come visit friends, associates, but it's not the same as having someone who will not leave. It's not the same as having someone whom you know has an eye on you. It's watching you the whole time. This is part of what a family is about. Not just love, but letting others know when someone is when someone who is watching out for them. It's what I'd miss so much when my mother died. What I call your spiritual security, knowing that your family will be there watching out for you. Nothing else will give you that. Not money, not fame. He shot me a look. Not work, he added. Raising a family was one of those issues on my little list. Things you want to get right before it's too late. I told Maury about how my generation's dilemma was having children. How we often saw them as tying us down, making us into these parent things that we did not want to be. I admitted to some of those emotions myself. Yet when I looked at Maury, I wondered if I were in issues, about to die. I had no family, no children. Would the emptiness be unbearable? He had raised his two sons to be loving and caring, and like Maury, they were not shy with their affection. Had he so desired, they would have stopped what they were doing to be with his father every minute of his final months. But that was not what he wanted. Do not stop your lives, he told them. Otherwise, this disease will have ruined three of us instead of one. Amen. Amen. In this way, even as he was dying, he showed respect for his children's worlds. Little wonder what they... Little wonder that they sat with him. There was a waterfall of affection, lots of kisses and jokes, and crouching by the side of the bed, holding hands. Whenever people ask me about having children or not having children, I never tell them what to do. Maury said now, looking at the photo of his oldest son, I simply say, there is no experience like having children. That's all. There is no substitute for it. You cannot do it with a friend. You cannot do it with a lover. You want the experience of having complete responsibility for another human being. You need to learn how to love and bond in the deepest way. You should have children. So you would do it again, I asked. I glanced at the photo. Rob was kissing Maury on the forehead, and Maury was laughing with his eyes closed. That's when I do it again, he said to me, looking surprised. Mitch, I would not have missed that experience for anything, even though... He swallowed and put the picture in his lap. Even though there's a painful price to pay, he said. Because you'll be leaving them. Because I'll be leaving them soon. He pulled his lips together, closed his eyes, and I watched the first teardrop fall down the side of his cheek. And now he whispered, you talk. Me? Your family. I know about your parents. I met them years ago at graduation. You have a sister too, right? Yes, I said. Older? Yes. Older. And one brother, right? I nodded. Younger? Younger. Like me, Maury said. I have a younger brother. Like you, I said. He also came to your graduation, didn't he? I blinked into my mind. I saw us all there. Sixteen years earlier, the hot sun, the blue robes, squinting as we put our arms around each other and posed for instamatic photos. Someone saying, one, two, three... What is it? Morris said, noticing my sudden quiet. What's on your mind? Nothing, I said, changing the subject. The truth is, I do indeed have a brother. A blonde-haired, hazel-eyed, two years younger brother who looked so unlike me or my dark-haired sister that we used to tease him by claiming strangers had left him as a baby on our doorstep. And one day, we'd say, they're coming back to get you. He cried when we said this, but we said it just the same. 
It grew up the way many younger children grow up, pampered, adored, and inwardly tortured. He dreamed of being an actor, a singer. He reenacted TV shows at the dinner table, playing every part, his bright smile practically jumping through his lips. I was the good student. He was the bad. I was obedient. He broke the rules. I stayed away from drugs and alcohol. He tried everything you could ingest. He moved to Europe not long after high school, preferring the more casual lifestyle I found there. Yeah, he remains a family favorite. When he visited home in his wild and funny presence, I often felt stiff and conservative. As different as we were, I reasoned that our fates would shoot in opposite directions once we hit adulthood. I was right in all ways but one. From the day my uncle died, I believed that I would suffer a similar death, an untimely disease that would take me out. So I worked at a feverish pace and I braced myself for cancer. I could feel its breath. I knew it was coming. I waited for the way a condemned man waits for the executioner. I was right. It came. But it missed me. It struck my brother. Same type of cancer as my uncle. Pancreas. A rare form. And so the youngest of our family, with the blonde hair and the hazel eyes, had the chemotherapy and the radiation. His hair fell out. His face went gaunt as a skeleton. It's supposed to be me, I thought. My brother was not me. He was not my uncle. He was a fighter. And he had been since his youngest days when we wrestled in the basement. And he actually bit through my shoe until I screamed in pain and let him go. And so he fought back. He battled the disease in Spain where he lived with the aid of an experimental drug that was not and is still not available in the United States. He flew all over Europe for treatments. After five years of treatment, the drug appeared to chase the cancer into remission. That was the good news. The bad news was my brother did not want me around, not me nor anyone in the family. But as much as we tried to call and visit, he held us at a bay, assisting his fight with something we, he needed to do by himself. Months would pass without a word from him. Messages on the sanitary machine would go without reply. I was ripped with guilt for what I felt should be doing. I should be doing for him, and fueled with anger for his denying us the right to do it. So once again, I dove into work. I worked because I could control it. I worked because work was sensible and responsive. And each time I would call my brother's apartment in Spain and get the answering machine, him speaking in Spanish, another sign of how far apart we had drifted, I would hang up and work some more. Perhaps this is the one reason I was drawn to Maury. He let me be where my brother would not. Looking back, perhaps Maury knew this all along. Flashback. It is a winter in my childhood, on a snow-packed hill in our suburban neighborhood. My brother and I are on the sled, him on top, me on the bottom. I feel his chin on my shoulder and his feet on the back of my knees. The sled rumbles on icy patches beneath us. We pick up the speed as we descend the hill. Car! Someone yells. We see it coming down the street to our left. We scream and try to steer away, but the runners do not move. The driver slams his horn and hits his brakes, and we do what all kids do. We jump off. In our hooded parkas, we roll out logs down the cold, wet snow, thinking the next thing to touch us would be the hard rubber of a car tire. We are yelling, ah, and we are tingling with fear, turning over and over the world, upside down, right side up, upside down, and then nothing. We stop rolling, catch our breaths and wipe the whipping snow from our faces, the dripping snow from our faces. 
the driver turns down the street, wagging his finger, we are safe. Our, th our tire, or our sled has thudded quietly into a snowbank, and our friends are slapping us now, saying, Cool, you should have died! I grin at my brother, and we are all united by childish pride. That wasn't so hard, we think. And we are ready to take on death again. We just want to stop there, because it's page 100. Next, they're talking about emotions. We got, it's page 100 out of... Let's see. So that's the afterword. Okay, um, we have, there's 192 pages. So, got 93 left, count page 100. Okay, right, love you, baby.